morning and the day I got sick, I've been thinking. It's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came too late for that. I know. But lately, I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end. The best is over. Many Americans, I think, feel that way. I think about my father. He never reached the heights like me. But in a lot of ways, he had it better. He had his people. They had their standards. They had pride. Today, what do we got? Did you have these feelings of loss more acutely in the hours before you collapsed? I don't know. Welcome back to Ending the Myth. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And today we are bringing you, our loyal listeners, a special bonus episode. In the last two months, we have traveled all the way from 1619 up to the dawn of the 20th century. That's right. It is hard to remember when we first started this project with the idea of recording one or two episodes about Grandin's book. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> loyal listeners, when we first started this, uh, we were like, how many episodes do you think it'll take to, to cover Grandin's book? One, or do you think we'll yeah. need to have two? Yeah, we were like, <laughs> and, then we, and then we finally settled on three because we were like, okay, like just to, for buffer in case we want to cover anything extra, we'll do three episodes yeah. here. Hey, maybe the third one could be like an interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> everything will have been covered by then, so we'll need a, a third opinion. To, a yeah, third just like, viewpoint. you know, another third opinion. We'll, I think that that would, yeah, cover it. Like, one is the 19th century, the other 20th and 21st. Simple. <laughs> so now here we are, uh, 10 beautiful episodes of content later, two and a half months of uh, content, and we've finally made it to the 20th century so actually finally... 11 11 because <laughs> we had episode zero so we have to count the zero oh in shit that. yeah so we're 11 episodes in and we've finally <laughs> gotten to uh the halfway point of american <laughs> history <laughs> well you know we thought that we might do a episode where we sort of look back at where we've been so far essentially right you know uh, we're essentially at the, you know, you take two semesters of American history in college, right? If you're doing like the survey and we've essentially finished the first survey course <laughs> and it's time to uh, take a little break and uh, do a little uh, remembering of where we were once were. And, you know, we have some questions from some fans. We have some questions from ourselves, but I just thought maybe the first one that I would shoot to you, Munya, would be. Uh, what do you think was like most surprising <laughs> as we're going through this? <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> big question there. Uh, I there was there was a lot that was surprising to me. Like coming into this, like 
I am learning so much on the fly when doing this series, even when like, you know, reading Brandon's book, the re- reason why, like, you know, I think we are even like in- inspired by this. I think we talked about this on the podcast before it was like, you know, like, I think that like the ending, the myth just, or sorry. <clears throat> I think that the end of the myth is, no, um, our, our podcast has surpassed his book. So <laughs> well, I mean, objectively that, it has like, now, it, <laughs> now people will refer to ending the myth and then remember later that there's a book called end of the myth. That's, that's what well. I'm talking about. We've successfully <laughs> corrected Greg Brandon. Now we just have to keep on doing it. <laughs> but like, I, I feel like that was a way that us history was told in a very unique way that connected with me on a level that I don't think really has and put things into perspective in a really interesting, concise way. I felt like it just had a better understanding of the world that we lived in. And I'm, you know, then doing this deep dive on ending the myth, like we are expanding so much on Grandin's analysis way past like stuff that he could even cover like in like a 250 page book. Right. And so um, like the short version is that, I mean like just tons of stuff, but I mean, like specifically, I think that stuff that I knew of and that I knew was n- like wretched and bad about America. I think like there's like a part of it where you can know that that is the case, but to actually deeply understand on a human level and on a systematic level how large the scope and scale was and how deliberate everything actually came about, whether that was the um, unraveling of reconstruction, whether that was, uh, you know, the Indian removal act, right? Like those, that project took a lot of deliberate planning. Um, It was a huge, huge project by, you know, the British colonists that ultimately let like one history event led to another and it fed off of each other. And like, it just didn't happen as like a overdetermined, um, like this is just how the way the world is. And like no, no real, you know, choice amongst people could like stop that train. Right. Like mm-hmm. this is just something in the U S project that was very organized from the start to be, you know, a colonial imperial and genocidal project by design and like i think actually deeply researching and understanding that from like the characters that we covered and the people who were also resisting it too right like john brown for instance right like Mm -hmm. the actual slave revolts the stuff that we don't really hear about in our history books in our popular media right like those stories as well were like a really interesting counterbalance to say wow this is actually even there was popular resistance to the degree that there was in the U S even at that time. So like, there's like, I, there, it's just this weird push and pull of me with like really inspiring stuff and stuff that like, I didn't actually think was happening to the degree at the time, like really just like radical actions, whether that was in labor, whether that was, you know, for abolition of slavery. And also on the other side, the people who ultimately have, you know, like won that war as we saw in the 19th century, the absolute ghoulishness and stupidity of this fucking country. And like, (laughs) (laughs) and like, I think once we actually 
research that and truly understand it, the scope and depth, it just like it hits so much deeper than just kind of having a knowledge of, oh, yeah, we did have slavery. Oh, yeah. You know, capitalism is bad. Like I, it, it, it adds so many new dimensions for me. Well, it, you know, it's interesting. We began this project because we would chat after Mechanical Freak episodes because uh, you just started reading the book. And you would tell me stories for the book, and I would be like, Munya, American history is so much stupider than you think it is. Yeah. And, and it's nice to know that that delivered. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> promise big delivered. Time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the big thing, you know, to your point, the excuse that's given a lot of times for things that happened in America's past that we don't want to face up to or, uh, God forbid, uh, do anything about uh, is, you know, oh, well, these are just people of their time, you know, oh, you know, this is just what you did back then and all this kind of stuff. And it is interesting when you go back and you realize, like, oh, no, they would have actually, like, moral, like, they would have, like, discussions about, like, the morality of what they were doing. Yes. And there'd yeah. be people in the room who'd be like, this is bad. We're the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, and they'd go like, like <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of money in it. And then yeah. they'd all say, to evil, clink glasses and do it. Like, <laughs> and it really does reframe a lot of the past for you and a lot of the people in it. Um, you know, you're not... It'll prevent you from being one of those nerds who keeps a pocket constitution and talks about how we got to recapture, you know, the uh, spirit of the founders. The spirit of it, yeah. yeah. Uh, literally the worst human beings alive. Like, uh, Donald Trump is not worse than any one of the founding fathers. 100%. I would go on like, record to say that, yeah, like, like, absolutely. Every one of them in every part of their life was a worse human being. <laughs> Donald Trump, but which is not to say Donald Trump was a good guy, just how bad these guys are. Pure yes. fucking demons for the most part. Um yeah, and I think, you know, for me, it's interesting when you structure history in certain ways, it leads to different sort of insights. And for me, as somebody who, you know, knows a fair amount about reconstruction and things like that, I always looked at it through the labor context, right? Through the, you know, uh, disappearance of a slave system moving into a wage labor system and the role that like race and the law played in in labor, right, in the upcoming labor struggle. And, you know, one of the things that this book really helped me with was I never really considered the West, actually, and the story of Reconstruction, not not in any deep or serious way. And particularly the conversation we'd had with uh, Richard White where he had talked about the need to pull federal troops out of the South just to protect railroad investments, right? right. And make sure railroad investments can be realized in the West and things like that. And how these things had very real impacts on the ability to carry out reconstruction. And, uh, you know, that just not going West actually probably would have done a lot to, to make reconstruction a more successful project. And it was just one of those things that just reframing how you think about something sometimes can create sort of new insights. And that really kind of blew some doors open for me, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. it's unlocking. It truly yeah. is. It's like sometimes when just like the like that one little piece to the puzzle just totally like, you know, like makes the uh, the picture just like totally reframed and how we're even thinking about it. That's I mean, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Our, you know, interview with Richard White, like that was like 
the kickoff of this whole project that was honestly our first recording of ending the myth by the way yeah. so you know you, you guys can shut up about the audio he, he had no obligation to even accept an interview with us he could use his laptop mic if he wants to all right like god but but i mean like it, it, he did really you know hit hard on on the west and it, it's just like a totally like if you think about like counterfactuals like just that very idea like they have these they serve multiple purposes, right? Like, sure, like, you know, like troops are protecting capital like that in and of itself, you can just like talk about or like the expansion project West, but there's also a trade off with reconstruction in general, right? Like there's finite numbers of people who, who, who especially trained troops and under a military occupation, which it, which it absolutely was, you, you need to have troops there. And like, they didn't just get withdrawn, but they actually got withdrawn for that express purpose of being sent west. And I mean, that's yeah. like that's like a one to one, you know, correlation there. And so, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. When he, I mean, one of the big questions about Reconstruction ultimately becomes like, how do you dissipate the revolutionary energy that was there at the beginning of Reconstruction? And, you know, there's lots of answers. I mean, you have Andrew Johnson be around, right? Uh, you know, you uh, in you install a system of terrorism against the black population. But a big thing is like, well, what about all those troops, you know, who gained this radical anti-slavery perspective and viewpoint during the war? And it's like, well, you dissipate that by literally dissipating the troops by sending yeah. them off on imperial adventures to just get them out of the way. And uh yeah, it was it was just one of those things that uh, I, w I was really uh, happy for that interview. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of blew my my mind a little bit. So, you know, hopefully people go back, listen to that interview. You'll hear us be, uh, you know, we'll be like, what? As he says stuff. But you'll also hear him as we say things go, I've never thought about that, guys. That's the most genius insight ever. Wow. Uh, you guys actually read my book in the correct way, unlike yeah. um, all of my other peers. You guys actually beat out everyone, and you're pretty incredible. Yeah. I, Richard White, am impressed with you. That's what, that's what, he, what said. he said. It was yeah. off mic. We didn't catch it because his, his audio was bad. It got a little garbled, <laughs> but he did say he was going to dedicate his next book to us and all the insights yeah. in it would be ours. Yes, uh, uncredited, yes. though, because we <laughs> yeah. we don't believe in uh, like stealing or not stealing, but we don't believe in like academic valor generally. Right. You know, so yes, we're like, you, yes, know, Richard, exactly. you, just, you can have the ideas. All right. We're not into intellectual property and all that jazz. And that's so. how you can tell that we. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Well, uh, I know that we somehow managed to stretch what was at one point two episodes into now 11 and eventually <laughs> will be uh, 20 or 30 or 40 yeah, episodes. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it might be hard for the listeners to believe this, uh, having spent now several months with us. Uh, <laughs> but we actually did leave some things out. Yeah. Not everything <laughs> wound up in the show. Um <laughs> and uh you know was, was there anything that maybe we left out that maybe you were like fuck man we should have covered that shit <laughs> um well like initially i think it was gonna be like the slave rebellion but then we ended up like covering that too <laughs> so like you know um but i mean they, there there were um you know certain things like for instance if you want to actually go into the slave rebellion like there's like a whole like if you want to talk about like podcast series like there's a podcast series called uncivil that dedicates like you know like tens, twenties of episodes, you know, to 
just like that period of of the Civil War, right? And I think like there's like certain like characters, like for instance, we touched on John Brown, and um and even like um, Nat Turner, um, but even like going deeper, I think there's so there's such a profound story there that would require us to like have a whole, I think, series to tell in like, you know, in full, which I think would, would be just like, you know, really valuable in a sense. Cause it's just like John Brown and his spirituality and like, you know, the actual like on the ground action that had to happen in the midst of more like, you know, like reformist, gradualist ideas of um of how to just you know phase out um you know slavery like it was just such a i feel like those stories um really really just kind of hit home how essential not only you know like revolutionary spirit was in at the time in america um which is usually co-opted within history to talk about like a bourgeois revolution, right? Or like, you know, a revolution of elite interest. But, um, you know, this was like truly comes from this like spiritual place of love, right? I I do wish that like we could have had the time to cover more of those stories and the actual like, you know, like people whose stories were not really uh, told there. So, you know, I, I think that like, that's something that I wish we could have covered, um, mm-hmm. you know, more i think also so there's not much like um before like the 18th mm-hmm. you know century in um the end of the myth like there's like a like maybe like two like history points right um but i feel like even like the initial colonization even before america was turned into like you know colonies in general right like i think that that development too um and like, you know, the interaction with the other colonies that were already there from the Spanish and the French and like how that actually developed, how America was able to then just like sweep in in such a uniquely like aggressive way. The nuances of, I think, um, of the different colonies kind of battling it out, which we've, you know, discussed in like the Texas episode and stuff. But I think the pre the pre formation of the U.S. and still having like, you know, like European settlers come in, you know, I think that that was, you know, like deliberately kind of more scarce in the end of the myth and hence, like, I think in our uh, coverage too, but mm-hmm. you know, that's something that I wanted to, you know, learn more about and cover as well. So um, I think that those are the two kind of things that I would have liked to include if we had like infinite amount of time. Yeah. I mean, you know, on the question of sort of slave rebellions, uh, there's a slave plot in Virginia in 1800 that's referred to as Gabriel's rebellion. I mean, honestly, we could have done like multiple episodes just on this. I mean, it totally when we talk about the you know slave masters would get together and be like, should we be evil? This is literally one of those moments where in the Virginia Assembly House, they even ask like, you know, uh, you know, if we're going to keep, you know, this monster meeting slavery, we got to put it in chains. Right. You know, so should we keep it? And they all look at their pocketbooks and say, yes, yes. <laughs> but you know, it shows that they they recognized a lot of things based on this rebellion, like the connection between uh, like living situations where if black slaves and workers live near white workers or amongst white workers, that that could cause, you know, cross race class alliances that could create some problems. Gabriel's Rebellion was a multiracial rebellion in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um 
it interestingly showed the fear that the South had about Haiti and also the influence of the Haitian Revolution on slaves and things like that. Uh, Gabriel famously had a dictum that uh, f- people of French descent were not to be killed in Richmond <laughs> you know, because he felt that they were like fellow revolutionaries and Jacobins, right? You know, which he saw himself as, you know, this, yeah. uh, this, this, you know, uh, a slave blacksmith, right? And you know, it uh, it's one of those stories that's so interesting, and it says so much about America at the time. But you know, look. Just like Grandin, sometimes we gotta leave some stuff out, right? But we'll put <laughs> we'll put some things in the notes for people who want to catch up on that stuff. The other is, I mean, your point on Native Americans is one of those ones that I thought about quite a bit. And there's a whole story of Indigenous America. Uh, you know, it's pre you know contact existence, right? It has its own history and stuff like that. A lot of it, which has uh, people have struggled to tell and had like really valiant efforts at trying to retell. And, you know, as a post-contact history that is, well, tragic, also, there's there's a lot happening, there's a lot there. We've hinted at it at times, yeah. talking about, like, the Comanche Empire and stuff like that. But, yeah. uh, honestly, this one comes down to, uh, I just really don't know a lot about it. <laughs> it's not something yeah, I'm, like, well, super and, right well, and, 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 you know? and that's, like, the whole thing is, like, you know, I, I really would love to tell these stories, but it's just, like, one, what happens with a successful uh, genocide is that that history gets removed too, or that history mm-hmm. gets changed and erased. There's theories. I mean, like really, I, I and I think you know, like we were talking about, like actually, um, like puzzle pieces that like just unlock a new way to look at it, like totally just like you know, like elevate the perspective. And I feel like it is just like really important for it was, and it was important for me. And I think it is just really important to stress that when like these stories are told even if we're saying even like the point of this like series is that america sucks like this fucking this like country is awful and every like like colonization is just like the most wretched um like disgusting shit in the world and it's like a tragedy that it happened but I think what gets lost is the actual other end where we're, we talk about like Native Americans mostly as like, you know, like victims of this, of this, you know, um, violence, which is true. But I think also the story is, is that, you know, this was an advanced, complex society with their own mm-hmm. norms, politics and like, you know, formations like and, and like, I think it's like sometimes like the implication could be that like, oh, these were just like um romanticized like hunter gatherers just like in the woods like just living mm-hmm. like you know primitive lifestyles yeah, which is noble just like savages, it, yeah. yeah noble savages exactly and like um you know it's just like not the case and i feel like it's just so important especially when we're telling these story to you know um you know, americans that and like you know people and like settlers in america is like you know they're advancement in technology they're like actual like you know like social formations how they distributed trade the pol- the internal politics of native american people you know like that that is something that's so fascinating historians have like been you know able to at least piece some stuff together and also you know theorize on i guess like just like the actual humanity of their of their communities, like before even like Europeans have like come in. Um, yeah. I mean like there is this like new book called chief Seattle. Um, 
and the town that took its name, which is, you know, Seattle, Washington, you know, and it's like, you know, documents like the history of, you know, the actual chief and the native people like, you know, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I feel like that other side of history is like, I think important to really just like emphasize it, but it's just like hard to do because with genocide and, you know, with like a settler colonial project being successful, a lot of indigenous history gets mm. inherently erased or skewed and like hard to really track because everything is kind of, you know, documents are burned. But I mean, even like yeah. the very idea of like something that we didn't mention, which I kind of regret not really including is just this tidbit where, you know, like the extermination of the Buffalo, I mean, like yeah. the was consciously done to kill Indians <laughs> was consciously done. Yeah. And That's not only that fact. is that like now scientists have found and I'll, I'll cite the scientific, you know, research paper on this. Scientists have found that they slaughtered so many buffaloes. And this is, again, going back to my first point about scale, right? Like the actual scale of this. They slaughtered so many buffaloes that not only just like because of that, like completely, you know, eradicated the native communities and native population, native people. But that very action, they slaughtered so many that it actually increased the global temperature by around one degree, you yeah. know, like, I mean like the, the, the global temperature, just like within that very action yeah. alone. Um, and I, I, I just couldn't believe that I didn't include that in that, but that, that was just something that was so, so shocking. Yeah. I mean, uh, there was this period in Europe, uh, you know, immediately post contact called the mini ice age, and it's actually created because European contact with Native Americans kills so many Native Americans uh, that all their cultivated land essentially reforests, right? So it becomes this massive reforesting project and creates a mini ice age. I mean, like oh the, the level of death and destruction in just the discovery of the, you know, quote, new world is... Uh, it's really shocking. And I mean, there's, there's almost no scale for it. Uh, Ward Churchill in his book, a matter of genocide, uh, which is like a collection of essays of his, uh, yeah. Different W Churchill. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, as a whole, one of the essays in it just deals with how many people were in the Americas pre-contact and the like wild sort of swing in that everything from, the uh, you know estimate that was popular when I was a kid, which was one million in all of the Americas, to maybe there was twenty million people in the United States alone, you know. Um, uh, which, by the way, that mini ice age thing probably points to much higher than one million in all of the Americas. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, it, it's it, it's just it's a fascinating thing, and you know, uh, hey, look. We can't know everything about everything, right? So, but yeah. <laughs> encourage people to look into it. Yeah, I mean, like, even, like, uh, just, like, to conclude this point, like, if you think about even what is, like, documented history of Native Americans, there is actually a chance that the picture that were painted even of, like, what we deem was, like, Native society before, like, the death and destruction, right? Or at least, like at the beginning of like you know like settlement that very picture very well could be an actual apocalyptic scenario in context right because mm -hmm. 
diseases could like spread, even though like maybe colonists have not even been close to the West. Um, diseases that European colonists could have brought over to the Americas and have like basically like dispossessed and like, you know, swept away like, you know, like millions of of people. Um, their societies could have been way more even intricate, complex, and just like advanced than the picture that we created. It could, in, in their context, even like the charitable picture that we are painted of like, oh, this is how like they lived to them, that might have already been society in decline, right? And that's like some mm. historians do, you know, theorize that. I mean, it, it is something to even like consider that like without even like that documented history, there is certain evidence that points to the fact that uh, even stuff that we don't even know could, it could have even been more, you know, advanced than we even realize, yeah. you know? Yeah. And certainly by the time the British are making contact and what would become the United States, uh, these are societies in significant decline yeah. at this point, right? Uh, ravaged by disease and in, in many places in the Americas already in a state of full collapse. Yeah. All right. Well, that was uplifting. Let's maybe let's take let's take some. Listener aren't you glad questions. that we? Uh, <laughs> are, 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 are you sad that we didn't include those like uplifting, like positive? I <laughs> imagine the first ten episodes have just been this. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so uh, let's take some listener questions here. So I'm I'm just gonna condense one of these. It's a good question, but uh, let's just go with why did Western expansion work? Is essentially what was the appeal of it, right? And uh, what happens now that there's no more land? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, dear listener, this is essentially the central thesis of Greg Grandin's book, to be quite honest. Um, yep. the, the end of the myth is the idea of the end of free real estate, the end of, of the frontier. When we talk about the frontier, it is about where we can expand, right? we have reached the point in American history and like, you know, where we are at the turn of the 20th century, where we have like expanded West fully states are incorporated on the West. Right. Um, now the frontier then goes out to the Imperial age. We have to expand outwards to you now acquire, you know, land in, in Latin America, in, in the Caribbean, in the Philippines, right? Like that's how imperialism kind of spreads. So like this idea of, you know, like like Parenti and Lenin have, you know, said like, you know, like a no growth capitalism is a contradiction in terms, um, you know, you, you, the capitalism requires endless growth. And as a capitalist organized imperial society, imperialism has to be that mode of expansion um, mm. and expanding, expanding West no longer could suffice. So to continue this myth because remember at the end of the day it's always been a myth but to mm. extend the life of that myth you have to find new frontiers to expand to um mm -hmm. now the now the question which i think we would just kind of spoil the whole ending is like you know what happens when there is no more land what happens when there's no more conquest what happens when we are in a decline in a way where we're in a crisis of capitalism that, I think, is the question of what happens to the American mind? What happens to society at large when this myth comes crashing down and the contradictions of just like the fundamentals of capitalism, right? As like, you know, 
quality of life goes down significantly as surplus value is um, extracted from, you know, wage laborers as the rich get richer, poor get poorer. What happens when we can no longer have this safety release valve of expansion west with the promise that we can just mitigate these fundamental contradictions of capitalism by doing that? And I mean, the answer is the world that we're kind of living in right now, frankly. Like, I mean, like in short, like we are living through what happens when this myth does end. And, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing it. Yeah, I mean, you know, just to get to the the you know the more mythic aspects of it. I mean, one of the interesting things uh, that we talked about with Richard White, as well as talked about on the show, is that uh, it took a lot of cajoling to get people to go west, right? Like this idea that people were just like chomping at the bit to start Woo-hoo, moving west. Let's go. Yeah, let's let's go die in the woods. Uh, <laughs> was about as popular a slogan as you might imagine it would be. And it took a lot of effort at uh, convincing people to do it, giving them subsidies to do it and things like that, Uh, giving them the right to do things in the West they would not be allowed to do, (laughs) Um, you know, in eastern seaboard cities. Um, But in the end, it was always about two things, which was, yes, this myth that capital could expand forever and that would never hit a limit. Uh, but it was also for, I think, people, the regular everyday people who traveled west, it really was largely about this idea that you could escape capitalism somehow, yep. right? There was some magic trick, one one trick to get you out of <laughs> what people recognized, because uh, you have to remember wage labor is just coming into being at the time that America comes into existence. But it was one magic trick to get out of wage labor, to get Bosses out of- Bosses hate him. Yeah, to get out of renting in cities forever, right? And things like that. Uh, now that we're all living on the West Coast and living in rental units, uh, we can say for sure there is no escape. Yeah. But, but it was it was holding out the belief that you could. And I think what do they do now? Well, they've just conti- they've maintained this mythology that you can escape. They've just continually revised it down. So instead of the wide open Western prairie or, you know, the, the fertile lands of the Louisiana purchase. Now you, you, in the fifties, you had suburban homes, right? You can move out to the suburbs, you'll own the home and, you know, you'll escape all your problems and all that. Right. And people found out that that actually doesn't really work. Right. Uh, It's created a certain type of maniac in this country, but a new type of guy certainly dropped during, during the middle of the 20th century. But now capitalism's foreclosed even on that, right. Even on that home ownership thing. And now I think it's all about just uh, a West of the mind, right? Like, cause now (laughs) there's no physical space or anything to give you. (laughs) There's no actual real life corporeal goods to give you. So now it's just, I honestly, and I, this is a foreshadow to, episode that we're gonna have in the future an interview i think it's gonna be great we're gonna have a future i think it's the fucking internet yeah the internet is the west now like you can go and uh now this is also why everybody's unhappy because it's the shittiest version of this myth that we've had to date (laughs) but they're like yeah you know forget that your life sucks that's total dog shit uh just go to the metaverse it'll be fine Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. You know? No, ex- I mean, exactly. And, you know, this is, uh, it's actually not even, they actually, the capitalists themselves have actually spelled this out, right? Like, we don't even have to use like these critical things that we're used to even like make this point, because I think Mark Zuckerberg directly said in a leaked memo on Facebook, um, now 
now actually his company is called Meta, funny enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the leaked memo actually was that they, the rich, uh, whoever, you know, the people who attend like the Davos uh, convention, right? Like mm. um, the thought leaders, the owners of capital, people who rule over our lives, they see not only virtual reality not only is it a you know a way to make money and you know open new markets and stuff and get people engaged in the same way that we're engaged in like you know like video games now but they directly see virtual reality and virtual spaces as a way to release pressure social <laughs> pressure and activism and change in the real world they see that as an actual neutering device of the working class, mm. right? And they have explicitly said that. And if you think about it, if, if you know, you have a class-conscious capitalist class who understands that people are getting, like, completely subjugated, um, you know, wages have been going down for a while, you know, adjusting for inf inflation, especially if you adjust for, you know, productivity going way up, Mm. Um, you know, wealth inequality skyrocketing, quality of life declining to the point where we actually have a chance of dying earlier rather than later. Oh, not a chance. That's already come. Yeah. The, yes. uh, yeah. the life expectancy is gone and is starting to go in reverse now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's already starting to go in reverse, right? So if you have a class conscious class who is on the other who is on the winning end of that. And they understand that this is what is happening to these people. And they are going to probably revolt if, you know, not something changes. What if they could instead escape that hell that they're living in and create a new life for themselves in this virtual reality world where they can now, like, they don't have to even be tapped in to this world where we can actually have a different virtual world where you can escape into. I mean, that is a, inherently a frontier in a way, right? That is a safety release valve completely. You, I mean, like, there's a picture, I mean, to really kind of hit this point home, you know, it's like a homeless person in a tent wearing, like, an Oculus virtual reality <laughs> headset, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, like, and that is, like, evidently, if you are, you know, on the losing end of capitalism, as much time passed, like, that is, like, where <laughs> the end result is. is like, you know, you're not, not even have a home, but hey, at least I have this, like, you know, cool yeah. tech where I don't have to be in this, like, wretched you know, world well, anymore. And the beauty of capitalism is even though that's a totally free space where they could they could literally give you anything because it costs nothing, uh, they're still gonna loot crate it and put like prices on everything inside it and all these barriers till they'll even close that frontier. <laughs> For yes right? i mean like I mean, so that frontier is, is getting closed like the, the people are buying is virtual real estate yeah, they're yeah. buying virtual real estate <laughs> it is a death cult my friends which leads yeah. us to the question of uh Munia, do you think we can uh the uh, the reader also or you know our fan had also put this up as well do you think uh we could escape into space maybe this is why the billionaires are obsessed with space <laughs> yeah well i think i think the space is just a really um you know uh obtuse example of the general myth that is that is unlimited expansion west right now the west is literally outer space like if you listen to like jeff bezos or elon musk talk jeff bezos owns blue origin elon musk owns spacex those are the two private like really big private you know space exploration companies um their vision for that really is the same justification that you'd hear for expanding into the third world and exploiting the third world 
It is all about how can we have a more, how can we exploit resources on <laughs> in, in outer space? How can we have people be more productive for a lot cheaper? Like for instance, what if we like just like sent all of our Amazon workers uh, to the moon, right? To yeah. Mars. What if we just like colonize Mars and set up this like factory over there where actually because of like metaphysics and time, like they'd actually work a lot faster because, you know, of, of these like complex like science equations and stuff. Um, like what if we can actually just like privatize the natural resources? Because we've already done that on Earth. Earth is dying. So how about we do mm. that, you know, abroad, even outside of our own planet, right? That this is this is the this is the sickness, this is the virus of capitalism, right? Is that mm -hmm. no matter what you need to find growth and after everything is exploited, you need to like go beyond that thing. So I think it is really like the logical next step of endless expansion uh, while, you know, capital has, you know, control of the economy. Yeah. It's also a pacifier for a very certain type of guy who maybe effing loves science or whatever uh, to think that space exploration generally is just a pacifier for them uh, to think that, oh, yeah, we're going to have this future in space like Star Trek. Uh, hate to burst your bubble, guys. You're not. It's not happening. But it is this wonderful dream that you can sort of sell people, right? That is, again, just about escapism. It's yep, just pure exactly. escapism. How do we not deal with our problems in the here and now and put them off into the there and then? And I use those words deliberately because that's exactly what Greg Grandin talks about, about the West. <laughs> he says it's, it's a way to avoid problems in the here and now, mm -hmm. put them out in the there and then. And I think Moody is exactly right from the billionaire's perspective of what the space race, space race is about. And I think from the enthusiast perspective, who's just way too into Elon Musk's rocket company or whatever, it is just pure. It's a retreat into pure fantasy. You know, they're seeing the world. They don't think they can do anything, and they're going into fantasy. Just, just like the West was just an escape mm -hmm. from capitalism. Like the space is, it, it like for like the Elon Musk stands, right? Or like just like mm -hmm. or people who are just on Reddit and are just like, uh, you know, on our, if you've been on Reddit in 2012, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, you know, it was it's this promise that we can break out of this current mm -hmm. hell that we're yeah. in. Right. And, There's something and that, that can we transcend just, it. We wouldn't just recreate that hell in the new place we went to because the hell is in us. Right? Yeah. Because like, certainly we know. didn't already export that hell to other countries on our own planet. Like. Yeah, we literally export like, yeah, yeah. We we sent it all over the world on this planet, which is why everybody wants to leave the planet now. Yeah. And it's yeah. like you're just gonna recreate it in an even more horrifying form on another planet. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Consider why leaving our planet entirely has so much purchase among people right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, so we had another question here uh, from a listener. This one is, why didn't the U.S. end up taking over Central and South America, or Canada for that matter? And uh, just a quick answer to that. Uh, they tried. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the War of 1812, of course, was a land grab uh, into Canada, and the British, you know, famously kicked the shit out of the United States and burned <laughs> down the fucking White House. <laughs> so that'd be one reason why we didn't grab some Canadian yep. land. Um, but, you know, little people know uh, there was actually multiple filibustering missions into Canada. Uh, 
you know, multiple in the antebellum period. And then hilariously, uh, there was three from an Irish like uh, fraternity or fraternal organization uh, of Irish Americans in the, after that, the that, Civil War. That's so funny. <laughs> they, they launched three hilariously stupid invasions into Canada that were like repelled by literally like by like Dudley Do Right just like, <laughs> chucking a rock at them and sinking their boats. You know, like pretty hilarious. Um, there's a dial-up episode all about that. That's pretty funny. Uh, there was also a lot of invasions into, you know, Mexico and Latin America generally. A lot of filibustering trips, multiple into Mexico after the Mexican War, uh, multiple uh, filibustering trips into Cuba, into Nicaragua, and into Venezuela. For those that aren't aware, filibustering is when private individuals uh, arm themselves and invade a country for the purposes of taking it over. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 uh kind of like what Aaron Burr tried to do in New Orleans in a way. Yeah, it is exactly what Aaron Burr was trying to do. <laughs> yeah, it's a great Burmania this country. Yeah. Um but yeah, I mean the answer the short answer is why uh didn't the US do that? Well they did. They they tried. Uh the longer answer is when it comes to Canada, there was the problem of the British being there and the US you know, there's a long running theme in U.S. history. The U.S. goes to war with countries that can't resist. It doesn't go to yep. war with countries that can. Right. And the British being connected to Canada meant that there would be resistance. So they, you know, they learned their lesson in 1812 and they didn't go back. Uh, the other thing is, is that to their knowledge in the 19th century, uh, Canada was only good for fur trapping. And so there just wasn't enough money in it. Too far from the south for the slaveholders to be interested. No good land for farming. And uh, for the North, I mean, they just didn't give a shit about fur trapping by that point, you know. No, so, Bri Brian, I think like listeners would be like, oh, but we beat the British in like, you know, 1776. Like, you know, how come we couldn't beat them in 1812? Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll get to that in a little bit later. But uh, you can thank India for that, basically. <laughs> so that comes down yeah. to. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll touch on that a little later. But uh, India is the reason why Britain didn't give a fuck about whether the U.S. leaving or not. Like, you know, yep. you've got to put up some resistance, right? <laughs> you know, but uh, ultimately, they had bigger fish to fry in another part of the world at that time. Um, the stuff in Latin America is a little more interesting just because, uh, you know, there was support in all the sectors that you think might lead to a state you know invasion of latin america and of course there was in the mexican war a you know the u.s did invade latin america and then did it again in mexico in the early 20th century but uh i think that really does come down to if you look at the debates during the mexican war it's a question of race like mm. they just didn't want to take in that many non-white people uh the south was deeply suspicious of uh people of you know indigenous and spanish descent and just didn't want them and so there was sort of an idea of like we want the land but not the people and so we'll just create a border and push them below it uh and i and i think that is in sort of in brief why like the u.s didn't engage in further wars against latin america right at least for taking land purposes yeah yeah for like actually annexing them into the united states yeah now i mean and it is worth remembering, we talked about this in the Mexican War episode, too, that, I mean, when the U.S. went to war with Mexico uh, in 1846, uh, there were a lot of people who were a little concerned that we might not win that war. So yeah. you also have to remember right. things from the not from the perspective of today, where the U.S. is a world bestriding military colossus. You got to remember in the time where the U.S. had a very small informal military and 
wasn't 100 percent clear could win any sort of real conflict yeah i mean in mexico like you know even like going to war against like let's say like the aztecs or something or like you know any like you know there was like hardened military militarized you know uh people in armies in south america and you know central latin america too yeah mexico had been fighting battles for independence of course they fought their own frontier wars in mexico and stuff like that so it wasn't like they didn't have a military or anything (laughs) like that so you know there were were concerns that might not be a winner Mm -hmm. um here's a fun one who and i imagine this is of the people we've looked at so far has (laughs) non-binary vibes oh man um that that's a that's a good question you know i i think i think um (laughs) who does have non-binary vibes well i mean like yeah i'm i'm gonna okay wait who what what is what is your answer brian like who 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 actually who's non-binary for you um yeah i mean that's a tough one uh you know, James uh, James Buchanan is generally. I I understand that this is not necessarily non-binary, but <laughs> I think there's plenty of evidence that James Buchanan was gay and was our first gay president. And they did call him like on the congressional floor, would refer to him as you know uh, Miss Fancy and things like that. Um, you know, so the idea that. Uh, the 19th century was just a pure uh, parade of like rugged straightness is uh, largely fictional as well. Yeah. I mean, if Um, (laughs) if you even want to go like Abraham Lincoln, there's a, there's, you know, speculation, you know, that, you know, maybe Abraham Lincoln was a little more alternative. Yeah. uh, Which actually brings us to a good point. I mean, the concept of sort of sexuality in male and female is, is very malleable. And uh, the concept that we have today didn't exist in the 19th century. And I don't mean the progressive concept we have today with, uh, you know, rainbow flags and whatnot. I mean, the concept of there is a strict thing called being gay and being yes. straight. Like, yes. that really was not a 19th century idea. That that comes about actually with the, our beautiful progressives and the uh, sort of pushing of middle class sexual virtues onto the working class. Um, yeah you know, it is highly likely that most of our early U.S. presidents had gay experiences or whatever, and that they had sexual experiences with other men, because that was actually not super uncommon. And yeah, uh, the no, it's actually it, like uh, the, the, yeah, the modern idea of, of straightness of mm-hmm. gay, of bisexual, like, the, like gay, bisexual, and like, you know, like lesbian, those are all words used by oppressors to put on to other people and like that was like an actual like project right like mm. um that really happened uh you know in like the 20th century you know yeah. like the, the the it's it's something that was a discipline it's something that feels like it was just like it's always been there right and we're slowly chipping away at this institution yeah. that was formed since like ancient greece but really like it with the rise of imperialism to be honest too like that 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 like social disciplinary structure of this is gay this is straight right like yeah like that that is something that really took hold like in the progressive era so i think like a lot of a lot of our a lot of our boys had non-binary vibes yeah. back in the 19th century our, i think honestly our, our like railroad barons i think they and i think they i think they would be um i think they would be the, the like the non-binary like uh 
libertarian like crypto guys um oh, yeah. you know but instead of like doing crypto they just like issue special dividends in their stock you know but then but they'd like have like split like split dyed hair and listen to hyperpop <laughs> yeah, and, and for people that are interested in this, like, where did these sort of like gay straight binary come from and stuff, and, and looking into that history, there actually is a very good book by a story named George Chauncey called "Gay New York" uh, that's all about New York in the Progressive Era and uh, the very vibrant gay scene that existed at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, and again, people's view of it, which wasn't that it was strictly gay. I mean, uh, Seattle. There's another similar book by a guy named Gary Atkins called "Gay Seattle" that covers a wide, wider time period but it talks about the it was extremely common in the skid row area of seattle uh at the beginning of the 20th century for male and female prostitutes to be working right next to each other serving the same clientele right Mm -hmm. you know uh so just one of those sort of things of like again another interesting thing about history is a lot of things that we think are products of nature or something like that uh are really like products of the early to mid 20th century yeah yeah <laughs> and <laughs> like extremely and, recent history <laughs> yeah and I, mean, I think this is the thing about why the buchanan stuff is interesting is the debate about whether or not buchanan being gay is really a modern debate not because at the time people questioned it this was a very common rumor at the time it's just that this wasn't a concept that existed in the same way at the time so yeah like people would literally joke and call him uh you know miss fancy or whatever but didn't stop him from becoming fucking president right uh whereas i think you could say probably uh in the last 60 years if you'd come out as gay that would be a complete impediment to being president right you know uh we'll have to wait for mayor pete to prove us wrong on this (laughs) (laughs) but yeah all right so well let's get to the serious questions munya which is uh you know, given what we've gone over up to this point, what would make the best movie? What's what's the movie you're making here? Yeah, 100%, I would have to say that, I mean, there's a lot of movies that could be made. And as we've discussed on this podcast, the dumbest, most ahistorical, like least consequential um, stories that come out of the 19th century America are the ones that are told. That are yeah. ones that get Oscars. Those are the ones that like <laughs> we like put on a pedestal. Like the least interesting, most just like yeah. obnoxious shit ever, right? That Gods um, and Generals was made should be an embarrassment to us all. Yes, one hundred percent. I think a really interesting story. If you look at like you know filmmaking, and I I, I will, I think that the opinion that I'm about to express that actually was you know backed up by a filmmaker, my mom, S.J. Chiro, <laughs> who um, listened to our Andrew Johnson episode with Matt Chrisman. And immediately she texted me saying, this is such an incredible story. I actually want to tell this story like mm-hmm. in a film. Like there must be movies about this man already because just like the – if we're talking strictly about like movies and how stories are told in movies, there's a lot of like interesting stories, but what like makes a movie, especially like, you know, with how we're conditioned to consume media and movies, obviously um, for I'm assuming a mass audience. Um, the story of Andrew Johnson is really interesting because it, you, you can focus on a central character, right? Mm-hmm. Who has this really 
tragic and contradicting upbringing, which with a lot of different levers and push and pull. And he has to make a consequential decision or decisions based on the actual context on where he's coming from, you know, the, the more like dialectics between like his, like wanting to be respected by the planter class and also disdaining them at the same time. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Being from being a Democrat from the South while still being loyal to the union, Um, being this kind of like nobody as a VP to suddenly being president and having the most power and the most consequential time in America. I think that that is just such a compelling story to tell about the tragedy of Andrew Johnson. And Mm -hmm. we just do not have any real movies. You know, I'm sure there's like a few and there's some, but like we don't have any real like, you know, like quintessential movie, especially in the zeitgeist. When you talk about Andrew Johnson, no one, everyone knows who Lincoln is. Like no one really knows who like Andrew Johnson is like in the cultural like zeitgeist. And I feel like, that would just be such an amazing movie to make. Mm-hmm. And I think that that story to tell, it would just be very clear and potent. You, you, it, it's, it's inspiring to think about that type of cinema that could come from the story of Andrew Johnson and someone uh, should make it. By the way, yeah. my mom said that if she does uh, end up, uh, you know, pursuing it, she wants to she wants to get you on as a history consultant, Brian. She <laughs> says she says she she literally wants to hire you and Matt Christman as like a history consultants when she like writes the script. I oh, there you uh, go. I laughed at that, and I, when I told my wife, I was like, "This is very sweet," and you know, and it's funny. And my wife's like, "No, get the money, Brian." Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's our Western frontier. Yeah, that's what we're living on right now. But no, um, yeah, I mean, the other nice thing is it also follows sort of the always sunny formula or Seinfeld formula, or whatever, which is that Andrew Johnson's a total piece of shit. So you can make whatever comedy out of it you want. Exactly. Because he sucks. He sucks ass. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, kind of on a similar point, uh, there, there's like a Coen Brothers movie about the railroad barons that's like desperate to be made. Um, Leland, like you could base it all around Leland Stanford, who all of his associates would just talk about how stupid they thought he was and like what a dumb <laughs> fuck and dumb shit he was and all this kind of stuff. And there's definitely something very funny. You would center around one of the like 10,000 hilarious schemes that the railroads were involved in at various times that all collapsed and caused like serious economic crashes <laughs> in the United States. Like, you know, the end scene could be them walking away with like, you know, going oopsie daisy, <laughs> like recovering money from a shell account while it's like the 1893 depression and there's just people starving to death in the streets. Whoopsie doo. No, it is literally like like the the counter revolution of Reconstruction and the which is the Gilded Age is literally one big Coen's brother movie. Like one hundred percent, it is it is so wild. Like I mean, like literally, like we were talking about like Richard White's other book, Railroaded. It's literally, I mean, it's probably like as like big, like uh, comparable in size to Republic for which it stands, which is just a massive book. At, it is literally like a, just a manila envelope of crime just yeah. like just, <laughs> just like and just not, not even like the the um the savvy like ooh you know like we have all of these different schemes it's like slapstick like blatant like ridiculous like crime that's yeah. <laughs> happening like, and like, like we're talking about financial crime specifically 
Yeah, and, and, and Dr. White went through, like, all their correspondence and stuff, so it's basically just them writing letters back and forth at, like, crime? Yes. You know, <laughs> yes. Like, crime, question mark, circle, yes or no. I'm like, yes. It's, but it's it was just, like, such... It, it was this, like, <laughs> formulation of, like, what we have in, like, being on, like, modern kind of, like, markets today on how we do, like, um, just, like, you know, general general just like you know financial engineering and like corruption and stuff like that that the mass scale of just like looting and like leveraging equity and debt Mm -hmm. and all of these like complex financial instruments like that was like what happened after reconstruction like it was like this is like endless like looting of like money uh, at the expense of so many other things well, it's important to remember that the railroad is the, like, formula for the American corporation, right? Like, it's the base blueprint. But it also totally remade finance, too, because they wanted to do all these schemes, right? And they found financial institutions that were happy to do them with them. And uh, basically, our entire, like, modern corporate form and financial infrastructure is birthed in this moment of uh crime yes yes <laughs> like, yeah like, that is the the birthing question essentially <laughs> just like our country got taken over by complete like oafish like grifters mm-hmm. and and like hucksters you know <laughs> and i like it too because uh in that book i mean the leland stanford this is why he makes like such a good example for this is we do kind of have a like um uh we do have a sort of there will be blood type image of like, yeah, uh, you know, Daniel Plainview, he's basically a psychopath. He is insanely like greedy, it essentially destroys his life. But he is this like driven character who's smart at what he needs to do and all this kind of stuff. Right. Uh, yeah, that's not the real world. The real world was uh, Leland Stanford's dumbass bungling into millions of dollars over and over and over again. <laughs> and uh, and that's why it needs a Coen Brothers direction, right? You know, like somebody <laughs> to do it that style, at least. But yeah. All right, well, let's, let's get some more listener questions in here. Um, here we go. Why on earth did the old powers of Europe, who were obsessed with the balance of power, let the U.S. essentially become as powerful as all of them combined with... Uh, with basically no impediment. Uh, can you read like I, I think I think I know who wrote this. Um, can you like read that again in like a British accent? I think oh, I think Jesus Adam Curtis. And no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I think I, 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 I think, uh, I think Adam Curtis wrote this. <laughs> yeah. The balance of old power and old and the new new systems of power uh, <laughs> came yeah. in. Something fascinating happened where the old power still remained. <laughs> they forgot about one thing they they forgot about power <laughs> uh, yeah i mean to this question of uh how do they let this happen i mean they didn't i mean like they, they, <laughs> like they tried at times to contain the united states i mean the, the real answer is it the early part of the 19th century when containment would have been the most feasible uh they were busy with a little guy Uh, named napoleon (laughs) roaming around france and uh they were a little tied up in their own bullshit at that time uh to worry too much about the united states but the other big one is they just had bigger fish to fry particularly in the early mid 19th century which is britain was just totally tied up in india 
yep. not tied up in the sense of like, oh, India was, you know, so difficult, you know, for them to manage or whatever. It's that they were extracting just so much wealth out of India. They just didn't give a fuck. Like what was going no, it on? It didn't even compare the scale. The scale, yeah. like, it's just like it was like a crumb compared to like the massive skyscraper of India compared to the U.S. at that yeah, and, time. And well, certainly there's a lot of the United States sits on a lot of fertile land. It sits on some mineral resources, some very important oil and uranium resources that nobody's going to know about till later. Um, it was not immediately apparent how valuable the United States was. Uh, which is again part of why the British sort of let it go without, you know, really putting too much of a fight up. Uh, whereas India was very apparent from the beginning. Yes, how much was there to take? Uh, I, I was I went and found this this from an article I wrote in 2010, right? And I was going to read this little segment here that kind of gives some some scope because I don't think that people really get this, uh, like how valuable the East was. Um, so when British imperialists first started visiting India in the 18th century, they commented on the country's immense wealth. In 1757, one Briton described Dhaka and Bengal as being as, quote, extensive, populous, and rich as the city of London. Another observer described the region as, quote, a wonderful land whose richness and abundance neither war, pestilence, nor oppression could destroy. A 1918 report of the British Royal Industrial Commission remarked that, quote, the industries of India were far more advanced than those of the West up to the advent of the Industrial Revolution. With Britain's official declaration of dominance over India in 1793, all that changed. Indian industry was systematically destroyed, much of it carted off back to Britain. By 1840, the population of Dhaka had fallen from 150,000 to 30,000. Writing in 1835, a British official wrote of India, quote, the misery hardly finds a parallel in the history of commerce. The bones of the cotton weavers are bleaching the plains of India. In the final years of British imperial control, conditions worsened even. Between 1881 and 1939, life expectancy dropped in India from 30 to a mere 23 years. Jesus. So the pure, grotesque extraction of wealth out of India is really what Britain was concerned about for the entirety of the 19th century. Uh Throw on top of that, Britain, France, and Germany all fighting over, you know, African, you know, co conquest in Africa. It's not until basically the mid-late 19th century that Europeans can make any inroads into Africa. But once they get into that, like, again, like, America just stops being so important, right? So the, the larger point is their eyes were off the ball on this yeah <laughs> yeah i mean like Brit britain money. was like the and like just like the um like most expanded empire at that time too i mean they weren't just in indians india was by far like they're like most like involved colony but i mean they were literally like all around the world at that time oh, you yeah. know like they were they were, um, you know, they were in Kenya. They were in, you know, they were forming Rhodesia, right? Like, yeah. I mean, like they were, they were in Egypt. You know, like I mean, yeah. there was, there was so, there was such an expansive, like America yeah. was just another, another row on the spreadsheet, you know, of yeah. like places around the world to manage. Yeah, literally, when the Civil War happens, the South thinks that they are going to leverage their cotton production. Uh, to force the British to essentially ally with them and maybe join the war effort. Uh, but Britain literally just says, oh, no, we'll just convert all of Egypt's agriculture to cotton production, which they did, and mm -hmm. just supplant your production with Egyptian cotton. 
uh, which is why you know about Egyptian cotton to this day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And for the first time, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, people forget Egypt is like the <laughs> the oldest continuous civilization. <laughs> You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. going back to, the you know, 2500 B.C. at least. Right. And uh, and it was basically the first time in like 5000 years that Egypt became a net food importer because Britain, over the course of five to 10 years, completely destroyed their entire agricultural you know, structure to create the cotton industry in Egypt, uh, the modern cotton industry in Egypt, you know that's what Britain was up to, you know, yeah. <laughs> like doing those yeah. kind of things. Now, Britain did try half-heartedly to kind of contain U.S. expansion at various points. They were kind of poking around the West Coast and stuff, but it just ultimately wasn't worth the effort, I think, in their opinion. Right. And it's just the like risk-reward, risk management. It's just like, you know. Yeah. And for the French, I mean, their main concern was getting back Haiti for most of the 19th century. Haiti was by far the most profitable colony uh, that France oh ever my had God. possession of. It was of. so, Again, so lucrative. Another place that just minted fucking, you know, gold, minted money, right? Yeah. And um, something we don't think about today because the imperial powers have so thoroughly destroyed it. Uh, but, you know, it was an extremely rich country. And, oh, God, it uh, was insanely rich. Yeah. And I mean, like, literally, like, Haiti, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're on a podcast kick, like, uh, check out Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast on, on Haiti. If you just want, I mean, there's tons of books on Haiti, um, but, like... You know, if you that it's like 20 episodes will go into detail on like the Haitian Revolution um, and also like read like the Black Jacobins by CLR James. I mean, like that literally like not only the racial formations that were created out of this and like when we say like racism is like created by colonialism and imperialism, like this is kind of like what we mean when you have like 127 different racial classifications based on like, you know, like who your grandma is and like what type of like black you are and like, you know, how many, uh, you know, privileges you get with that too. Um, but you know, also just like the fundamentals of how, essential it was to the french empire to hold haiti because i mean literally you can have like a money printer and you can still print out more and mint more fucking gold in haiti mm -hmm. than you ever could yep right so. yeah i mean haiti was extremely wealthy which is why everybody wanted it right yeah i mean you know uh this is stealing from parenti but it's like people don't go to the third world because it's poor they go to the third mm -hmm. world because it's rich the people are yep. poor because the wealth has been extracted right um but yeah, so basically that and the fact that the U.S. was just buffered by two large oceans from European conflict and the Europeans were just sort of fighting each other. And so it created a perfect incubator for uh, something demonic to come, essentially, to, to be created. And by the time, you know, what really brings the U.S. to the forefront is World War One, and uh, the European powers just are busy uh, literally taking all of their like youth and just feeding them directly into a meat grinder. And the U S is able to sort of swoop in and uh, you know, sort of take a, a higher leadership position that then is cemented with uh, the end of world war two uh, with, you know, for similar reasons. Right. But uh, okay. So <clears throat> the episode on progressivism discussed regulation of industries as the power players gaining more control while pretending to limit themselves. So how did that work with things like the eight-hour day, the minimum wage, etc.? 
Are these the carrot to the stick of massacring strikers and assassinating or arresting labor leaders? And so, yeah, I mean, this one's sort of a labor history question. And the thing is, is when you talk about limiting the working day and stuff like the minimum wage or ending child labor, which is also part of this, workers have been fighting for this in an organized way for decades. Uh, some of the biggest protests and strikes in U.S. history are center around the fight for the eight-hour day or the initially the 10-hour day. Uh, May Day ex- itself, so the May Day celebration that you see all around the world, but is uh, was conspicuously not celebrated in the United States until 2006. Mm. <laughs> and then it became about immigration and not necessarily about labor, although I think mm-hmm. you know, you know, people have you know tried to put the labor part back into it and all that kind of stuff. But uh, May Day itself actually comes from a... Uh, you know, the Haymarket protest in Chicago in 1884, I believe. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and there was a bomb thrown, you know, who threw it? Police or whatever, who knows, right? Uh, That a bunch of people were fucking murdered by cops and a bunch of labor leaders were sentenced to death and hanged for it. And uh, May Day is about that, right? It was an international protest against the arrest of these labor leaders. Um, so that's going all the way back to 1884. Now we don't get, you know, really any sort of limit on the working day until the early 20th century. So we do want to acknowledge there was labor pressure. That's a big part of it, right? Yeah. Uh, but it really does kind of come down to there has to be an opening for capital to accept it. And that opening really comes through fits and starts and through no conscious effort of their own. The capitalists start to figure out that, hey, maybe we limit, like, the working day and uh, in child labor. Uh, that was a big one. It'll help absorb some of this surplus population that's now just, you know, that social dynamite, right? The army of the unemployed. Maybe we can get some of them out of that, you know, sector, right? And put them into the workforce, right? We get it, it you know, pull more people into the workforce. And ultimately, that is going to be the driving factor for politicians and business leaders to get behind limiting the working day uh, and limiting child labor. Now, they never got rid of it. You could actually, in certain industries, you can still engage in hilarious uh, forms of child exploitation to this day, including the uh, the growing and cultivation of tobacco. So children are the ones who cultivate tobacco largely. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> Um, a little carve out that North Carolina got. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, it largely comes with that. Uh, There was also some social pressure at the time uh, from, you know, the middle class, essentially, who, you know, uh, would look at, you know, deformed children and stuff like that and say, ooh, I don't want to see that. Yeah, they were posting Instagram infographics. Yeah. yeah, and you know things like Whole House and stuff like that at the time were were big uh, and pushing this idea of like these children are being abused through uh, you know child labor and stuff. Now the initial <laughs> impulse of middle class reformers was we should steal the children of the working class <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this doesn't happen. Uh, but they eventually decided they didn't want those kids after all, and so just decided Get them into to... potato sacks and yeah. <laughs> And they would do that. They would. They would. I mean, in Seattle, they would lead marches down into Skid Road and into Shacktown, and they just round kids up and take them back with them. 
know, yeah, like, um, wo- wokely kidnapping people. Yeah. <laughs> they kidnapped a bunch of street kids in New York at one point in the late 19th century, just put them on a train and just sent them out west. Just like what? literally, and you know, for expectant mothers out west to just pick them off the train, yeah. You know, so there's these orphan trains that get sent in the 19th century. So, you know, there was always been this question: of what to do with street youth, what to do with the unemployed, and this kind of they kind of bumble their way into the idea of like limiting the working day is helping to solve it. Now, this is all also being part of the reason they get to this answer is the labor movement is pushing it harder and harder. Yeah. Right. But uh, you labor know, reforms it, do not come from people just in charge. Right. Especially if yeah. the people in charge are not labor people, you know. Yeah. And on their own, no capitalists would have come to this as the answer. No, right? that's so not it, the it conclusion the capitalists come to. It's come like, to it, it always comes from like pressure. Right. And when we talk about like even when we talk about like the Great Depression and how ooh, like FDR, like, you know, he like got all these like, you know, reforms that it's like it, that wasn't really from benevolence at all or from his generosity even though i do believe that fdr you know did i believe that fdr believed that he was managing his way you know away from capitalism um like but like he also was like i mean like an egomaniac and someone who was the president of the united states the president of the united states Mm -hmm. even if they like you know are able to get influenced by labor and not just tell them to fuck off the crux of it is like they were like, if we don't give them this, and like Capital was saying this, is like, if we don't fucking give them this, like, we might actually have like a revolution on our hands. Yeah. Like, we need to like actually put this down, basically. Yeah. And interestingly, Francis Perkins, who is FDR's labor secretary, uh, asked later about this, I think in, the, in an interview in like the early 50s, late 40s. Uh, she even said explicitly that when asked about the New Deal, she's like, look, we're staving off a revolution. Yeah. You know, and. You know, uh, the you know the force of labor will cause capitalism to give temporary. That's the, that's always the key thing that everybody forgets. Temporary concessions to be taken back later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the depression is actually when the minimum wage comes about. And interestingly, when FDR first passes, gets it passed in thirty three, it actually gets overturned by the Supreme Court, <laughs> and it's not even until thirty eight. But the minimum wage is a slightly different thing in that it's sort of the intersection of labor pressure. And the acceptance of Keynesianism amongst uh, economists in the FDR administration, uh, who are basically trying to explain to the brick wall that is the capitalist class, if the workers don't have any money, they can't buy anything. If they can't buy anything, capitalism doesn't work, right? And so this was, the minimum wage was part of priming the pump, as was unemployment benefits, social security, and things like that. and, you know, Marx has this thing about, like, the capitalists will never save themselves, right? It requires a working class to save capitalism from itself. Uh, the minimum wage, uh, the limiting of the working day, the end of child you know, labor, all that kind of stuff. All that was things that, like, labor essentially gave to capitalism and capitalism saved itself with, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? So, and notice how they're trying to take all of them away. <laughs> at this point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, here's a quick question. Is America or the American project uh, salvageable in any way? Is um, it re- can we be redeemed? Uh, I mean, short answer, no. I, I think it's very <laughs> longer apparent. Answer, also, no. Yeah, I mean, the longer answer is fuck no. Uh, 
this country is absolutely cursed from the start. Like, like, like okay. My, my question to this question is actually like, let's actually, let me answer this seriously. What is there to be salvaged with the American project? <laughs> the American project from the start has been about colonization, genocide, Indian removal, developing this rapacious form of capitalism, this new form of imperialism that has now dominated the globe. Um, that is like the set purpose that America was founded on and was the British colonists set out to create. So what are we salvaging when that is what the American project is, right? There's nothing to be salvaged. There's only it to be abolished, frankly. Yeah. And and there's no time, you know, like the present. I wish that, you know, maybe it was, you know, never got started in the first place. But <laughs> it's kind of it's, it's kind of like the idea of, oh, like, I don't know, is the police salvageable? Like, is yeah. like the U.S. military salvageable, right? Like, I think like you got to look at this from an abolitionist lens, thinking about do we reform this or do we actually abolish something that is inherently to the bare bones of its creation, um, the counter to anything that purports beneficial of the human welfare, right? Mm -hmm. For working people, for for people in general who are existing in a society instead of capital accumulation. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, the police abolition thing is an interesting thing to bring up because I think when people, you know, sort of mock it or whatever, the thing that a lot of police abolitionists are getting, trying to get across, which of course these people studiously avoid interacting with is that if you were to make the police not racist, if you were to make the police not an instrument of oppressing the poor, right, or disciplining the working class, if you did those things, right, which are the things that we seem to say that we want, uh, they wouldn't be the police anymore, mm -hmm. right? They would be yep. something else. This is so fundamental to who they are. They, and that's what you mean by abolition. Like, they would not, they would cease to exist as the entity that they are, right? Yes. And, you know, in the United States, it's sort of the same way, like, you know, minus capitalism, the United States really stops existing as a country, a project, everything else, right? This is what it exists for, is to enrich the capitalist class. <laughs> Without that, once that's gone... Yeah, what is America? Now, yeah. maybe, and now, and now, like, I don't want to come off as pedantic here or, like, you know, like, debate team as, like, you know, like, kind of interpreting this question in a way. Like, if you're asking this question as... Do we, as the people who happen to exist in America, is there a way that we can like have a different life than what is organized? And it's like, yes. Like the, when we say like, like the choice, the choice of abolition comes from the people who are, you know, like subject to, you know, mm -hmm. the oppression, whether that's, you know, like police abolition is like, it will come from the uh, people who are oppressed by, you know, police to abolish something and create something new. But that new creation that we can all make, right, would mean that the American project, and it implies the American project does not exist because it's going to be our own project. The American project yeah. is not our own, right? Yeah. If we want to make something that is our own, it can, it can be in the same land as America, right? I mean, you know, um, but like as the project, that's not ours. We can create something new. Yeah. It would be a completely new and novel to the American experience, at least political formation, right? That would yep. require new definitions and new, it would be a new existence, right? And, 
you know, to that point, I mean, I, I think there were opportunities where this could have happened or things could have gone differently. Like I, you know, if the U S had lost the revolutionary war, yeah. right. Which was very much a possibility. If England had cared at all about maintaining the U S colonies, uh, they could have easily done so. They could have right? easily uh, put us down if they really wanted to. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, people forget the, the centrality of a figure like George Washington and his ability to mobilize troops and to move them around efficiently. Uh, had George Washington died of any of the hilarious illnesses that he had or anything <laughs> like that, I mean, that alone might have like prevented a victory. You know, had the, you know, conflict between southern slave owners and northern capitalists or northern industrialists been slightly more developed, that might have prevented, you know, a unifying around, you know, uh, a revolt against England. I mean, there's so many things like that could have had that go a different way. I mean, any number of slave plots, Gabriel's Rebellion, the reason why you don't hear about it in history books and anything like that is that literally a rainstorm washed away the bridge that the slaves were taking back into Richmond the night of the rebellion. And they couldn't cross, they couldn't get to Richmond, basically. And that gave Virginia enough time to raise forces to put down the rebellion, right? That story happened in Louisiana. There was uh, two or three high-profile slave revolts outside of New Orleans within the first 20 years of the country's existence that any one of them uh or sorry not, the first 20 years of the country having acquired new orleans from uh france but any one of those could have led to a massive you know slave rebellion across the south right i mean there were sparks everywhere in the tinderbox that was the south that could have lit at any time and caused the country to be fundamentally different right uh you know <laughs> reconstruction could have gone differently right Mm -hmm. i mean there was lots of points now i think the one thing is those key moments where things could have changed right those uh hinge points to quote another podcast right (laughs) shout Uh, out to hinge points yeah i think they significantly decrease as time goes on yes (laughs) yes there was a lot more of them in the early stages of american history and there's a lot less of them now and uh yeah so i don't know uh i look forward to dying in this uh hell (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh wonderful oh right, let's take some you know on another optimistic note let's take some uh, <laughs> listener questions here i think right here we got a we got sort of a a, a lightning round of questions yeah here we here. go i'm ready for this okay if canonically because of the mechanical freak thanksgiving pageant spectacular this year uh we added this to the canon if teddy roosevelt is mac and william barrett travis is charlie who are Dennis D and Frank? <laughs> and I will add the poster added, which I thought was very funny. The American people are obviously cricket, which is yeah, yeah, yeah. the most true part of this entire, <laughs> entire statement. Um, all right. Uh, Dennis D and Frank, you got any thoughts on who could be one of, uh, one of those characters? Oh my God. I mean, like, the, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Dennis's out there. I I don't honestly because what who do we say was um he, we said Roosevelt was Mac and Barrett, Barrett Travis was Charlie mm. Dennis is someone who I mean who yeah I don't know oh, actually I know who Dennis is I know who Dennis is Dennis if he if you break him down he is very full of himself yes he I mean exactly yeah an intellectual. Oh but my at, god. Oh my god, art, of course. He's of a course. Sexual, he's a sexual predator. 
And it's Thomas psychopath. Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. It's yeah. Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson is Dennis, 100%. Yes. God damn. Yes, of course. D is the tough one because if we're going to be gender normative, right, this is a very male century that we just went through. Uh, but honestly, this is uh, this is a little off the beaten path of the show. But D, I think, is Abigail Adams, mm. who also similarly thinks herself very smart, thinks herself very, you know, you know, whatever, enlightened, um, is constantly engaging in plans with her husband, John Adams, who then promptly just ignores her. And also, you know, despite all her, you, you, a lot of times you read letters from Abigail Adams. It's like, oh, this is, you know, sort of a, a, a f- expression of early American feminism. Uh, which is true in the sense of like middle class feminism, in that like the second there's any sort of workers' revolt, all her letters are like every poor person should be murdered, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, kill them all in the streets. That's what I say. <laughs> it's the only humane thing to do. <laughs> the real tough one is Frank. I gotta yeah. be honest. I- I'm not sure who Frank would be, because uh, the problem with Frank is. Frank is a rich guy who wants to live like a scumbag and wants to live. Uh, yeah, he wants to live like a like a hot couch guy kind of, you know. Yeah, yeah, he wants to live. He wants. He's like a a, a purposeful member of like the lumpen proletariat. Yeah. And the thing is, this all the people we've covered so far, uh, they just want to get richer and richer. Like, not not one of them has thought like I should like kind of toss away my riches and live as a you know like a lumpen. <laughs> I mean, I mean. If we if we want to just cheat and just like say history um, in general that's outside of the U.S. I mean maybe Frederick Engels. Yeah, <laughs> I mean you know or yeah you know Engels uh, yeah because Engels also is very like libidinous or whatever. Yeah, Marx is the yeah. one who got who really got the bad end of the po- poverty stick and like lived this like wretched. Yeah, he life. was down bad. <laughs> yeah, but he also was like you know he was too driven. He wasn't quite like Frank, no Marx right? was Marx yeah. kind of had this like you know um, aspirational rising grind type you know like, yeah. mindset. Like I mean what what when you when you fuck the maid folks yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. connect the dots there <laughs> whereas uh angles was much more openly living like if you go to his uh you know origins of the state private property and the family or whatever yep. you go in there he talks about the poly relationships that he believes older societies have and the the wistfulness of this just comes off the page you know you just feel him being like He's the first DSA polycaucus. Yes, yes, he is. He is the DSA poly guy. Um, He has the polycule. Um, You you know, you have you have to get um, interviewed on your. You have to take the left values quiz to um, get inducted into the polycule, and um, you know. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. Frank in the Americas is tough, but we'll we'll think on that, listener. If we if we come up with a great one, I guess we'll have to tweet it out. <laughs> All right. Uh, here's a question that I want to stress is purely hypothetical. Uh, if you had a time machine and a 3D printed gun sent to you through the U.S. mail by a fan, <laughs> and you could shoot three three people, <laughs> who would it be? All right. All right. Hold on. Before you answer, though. Let me know when you think you're ready, and then I want to say one, two, three, because I think the first one we're, it's going to be the same person. And we'll you do think it so? Yeah. Okay. This is this is just within like U.S. U.S. history, right? From the time we've covered, from the time we've from covered. the time from the time we've covered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the characters <sighs> we've had on the show. 
Do you think it's really going to be the same? Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, all right. Let's do it. All right. One, two, three. Andrew, Andrew Jackson. Jackson. Oh, I would Johnson. Oh! Even Jackson. Oh. <laughs> all right, so I'll tell you why you're wrong. Is uh, we know that Jackson is deadly in a pistol fight, so you got to be yeah. careful. <laughs> you got to kill him from a distance. But uh, yeah, Andrew Jackson, Andrew Johnson. I mean, definitely got to be number one and two. I yeah, mean, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we went with the dueling Andrews on that one. <laughs> Andrew J's, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, but I mean, no, I mean, Johnson definitely too. Like, it's like. <laughs> yeah, they both fucking deserve it. That's for goddamn sure. Uh, maybe give me one more and I'll give you one more. Ooh, okay, okay. Um, So I also think in terms of like consequence, I, I think just for even more like. uh petty reasons than anything i'd probably i'd probably take out uh i'd probably take out jefferson as well like one i just like can't stand like reactionary nerds and i think that like you know that just mm. would just that just like bothers me that like uh that um gadget reddit guys were are also like you know like the main you know framers and uh founders of this empire uh i think that just sucks in general and we shouldn't have like reddit guys in power so um i take him <laughs> out but i also take him out just because you know and, and i think the reason why i gravitated towards jackson first instead of johnson was i was thinking kind of in like chronological order on like if we were to take out someone earlier on in history what could have happened mm -hmm. like if jackson's yeah, yeah. gone yeah. does johnson happen I don't know. Like, you know, now if Jefferson's gone, what would even like the U.S. look like? Is the U.S. overdetermined enough where it would just like, you know, survive in its form? But Jefferson like formed Jeffersonianism, like this idea, mm -hmm. which is what like then Jacksonianism was based off of. Like this is the ideological base of, you know, Americanism as it is. Right. And if you kill Jefferson and Jeffersonianism, um, you know, that which is basically this like you know like hardcore ideology of like you know government being stripped to its like you know very like limiting no government intervention really like it is like kind of like the basis of what is built on top of like libertarianism and everything now um or what libertarianism is based on you know now mm -hmm. is like you know like uh jeffersonianism um and like limited government and like anti-federalism um uh, compared to like Hamiltonianism, which is like more like, you know, like centralized federalism. Um, so like, you know, I mean, if you, if you kill Jefferson with a 3d printed gun sent to you via us mail by a fan, I mean, I think that that, that, um, that can't significantly change things. I don't know. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good one. Um, I'm going to go way more petty in that. I actually don't believe it would change anything is, uh, I would kill William Archibald Dunning who at Columbia University was the founder of the Dunning School in the oh, late 19th century, who rewrote the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction and ultimately the Antebellum South, uh, a, you know, to essentially tell the South story. And uh, so just pure pettiness, uh, saving, saving one for him. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, if he didn't do it, somebody else would have, but God damn it, fuck him anyways. <laughs> I mean, arguably same thing with Jefferson too. Like, you know, like we, there is an but argument that the them. U.S. was like overdetermined and like not one person can really influence it. But hey, you know what? It would be really satisfying to kill sure. both Dunning and Jefferson for sure. Hypothetically. Well, I, th <laughs> I think this will be our we'll do one last listener question which i think will be our, our fastest uh one yet uh 
will Biden win in 20? Oh, I put 2014. Jesus. <laughs> will I, I'm suffering from Biden. Is I got Biden brain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, will Biden win in 2024? Uh, this is really outside the scope of our uh, <laughs> of our book, but I right, we'll, we'll do another one, two, three here. One, two, three. No, no, on. no, no fuck not. no. Are obviously you kidding? Not. Come on, now. <laughs> no. Hey, don't kid yourself. Yeah, and like, look, look. I mean, frankly. Even like we've seen dumber shit happen, right? Like, yeah. Biden very could we could be just in such a decrepit, wretched like what some like meme posters would say, cucked state where we do elect Biden for a second term. But there's no rational idea beyond why that would happen, given <laughs> that you know, like the Democrats and Biden have like literally not done shit for the past years. Yeah, like let's look at let's look at the midterms that are coming up. I guarantee you that uh the democrats are going to lose the house and and probably you know the senate too um Mm -hmm. you know these the these like political swings the reason why it feels like we just swing from democrat to republican to democrat to republican is because we're playing like we've kind of said in our main show on mechanical freak um when like you know me and brian are just kind of ranting about this it's like you're when participating in two-party electoral politics in the united states right u.s electoral politics you are playing a game of three card monty this is a game that is never meant for you it is a game that is intentionally rigged against you yeah um there's a reason why we get emails saying oh you gotta elect democrats to like you know save abortion save abortion right today we can make Mm -hmm. roe v wade a law we could pass a bill that, 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 that is something that, but that would lose like its fundraising power right yep. it's it's you're you you are in this abusive hostage situation between two parties dominated by the capitalist class there is no yep. labor party in the u.s and if there's no labor party that is representing you there's just going to be a lot of positioning and ultimately betrayal and that's why you see swings every single election cycle because everyone backs out on their promise because it's not meant for you. It was never meant yeah. for you. It was meant for the capitalist class. That yeah. That's it. Well, much like Three Card Money, if you're playing the game, you've already lost. <laughs> you've already lost. And even if you know you're getting fucked over, yeah. even yep. if you know you're getting fucked over, you can still be a mark and get scammed too, even if you yep. know it is a scam. You bought into its legitimacy, which means that you have already been scammed. Yep. All right. Well, let's close out on, uh, you know, book recommendations here i mean despite what we tell our listeners it is probably not healthy to just listen to podcasts all the time (laughs) uh sometimes it's fun to just crack open a book smell the pages look at all the pictures you know read the small captions etc of course we consider Black Reconstruction to be mandatory reading. Mandatory. For all of our listeners. You gotta, gotta read it. it. it I'm serious. If you're in the US and you think you're on the left and you haven't read Black Reconstruction, what are you doing with your life, man? Just just read it. Stop listening to this. Go read this book. It's It'll explain a lot about the world. <laughs> it, 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 like, we're, you're t- we're talking about a lot of puzzle pieces and keys. This is literally the, like, fucking, like, ascending, levitating, like, fucking, like, third eye open book. You gotta, like, it's just a, yeah. it's just essential Re- even just like okay if you don't believe me if you're intimidated by the size this is actually the advice you gave me brian mm-hmm. literally like reading like the just start with the first three chapters that's yeah. it i mean it's not the first two chapters are not that long like even just read like you know chapter one you'll understand exactly what i'm saying it, it just will hook you like that and just yeah. like 
explains it in a way that's just so clear cut. And I think I've said this on the show, but I'll say it again. Uh, it's also one of the beyond being an amazing and important history. It is uh, one of the great works of American literature ever written. So yes, it's a fantastically well written book, a great read uh, should be read. But other than, than Black Reconstruction, which I think we've recommended at least 20 times on the show. <laughs> uh, is there any, any any book recommendations from uh, from this, you know, from what we've read so far, whatever that you would like to throw, maybe one or two you'd like to throw out? Yeah, yeah. I would say, um, I mean, there's like a, there's a couple. So I think, I mean, of course, also, well, one thing that we actually haven't really like said, we talked about like the Republic for Richard Stands with Richard White and Railroaded. Um I think another book like on that era um, that's kind of like the, also the compliment of like black reconstruction is um, Eric Boner's book reconstruction. Um, And like Eric Boner is like a scholar is like, I mean, like when you think about like modern scholars of reconstruction, like I think Eric Boner will like Eric Boner will be number one on the Google search. He's the guy. He is, is the like guy. the guy on it. And um, also he, he's tangentially related to Jake Gyllenhaal. So what? Oh, my yeah. God. I knew they kind of looked similar when you like, look at their <laughs> photo. I don't it's know like, that they're oh, blood related, wow. but they're like related through marriage somehow. But yeah, anyways, that that rules, man. <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal is like a stepson, basically. That f- yeah. Wow. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I, like Eric Funner's Eric book on reconstruction. He like kind of takes and is like a student of Du Bois in many ways, um, you know, takes Du Bois's analysis, finds new primary sources um, and tells the I mean, tells the story of reconstruction um, in such. In, in just I think like the most like just like concrete um you know, way where if you're looking after you read Black Reconstruction, if you want to, something to build on top of that, like Reconstruction by Eric Foner and um and the Republic for Which It Stands is uh are both yeah. great both in that respect. Yeah. Both excellent. Yeah, I mean I think I would throw out, I mean, kind of from more of the Gilded Age period, uh there's a book by a story named Sven Becker, who's actually a very good historian. Um, but he has a book called The Moneyed Metropolis that's about New York in the late nineteenth century. But what it's really about is about the post-Civil War formations of class, right? And the sort of identity that the capitalist class is going to take on. And one, if you want to learn about how miserable it is to live in a city, uh, it's great for that. (laughs) You'll learn about how (laughs) disgusting New York was. If you think it's gross now, oh my God. Holy (laughs) Um, shit. uh, You'll also learn why there's uh, armories in every city, which is a fun story in there. Uh, as well as uh, why the armory in New York is decorated with furniture from Tiffany's and company. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> to give you an idea who was in there. Um, but yeah, a, a absolutely fantastic book if you want to understand American capitalism and how it works. Uh, he also wrote a article called uh, The World Wide Web of Cotton that if mm. you want to know about the role of cotton in antebellum economy, uh, international antebellum capitalist economy is uh, very good. But I also like to throw out, I don't read a lot of fiction, uh, but I'll throw out one fiction book because I know that not all our readers want to read actual histories. But uh, there's a book by an author named Howard Fast, who is one of the Hollywood 10 who got blacklisted in the under McCarthyism in the 1950s. Uh, but he has a book called Freedom Road that he wrote uh, as he was, I believe he wrote it like while he was in jail, <laughs> <and got> out. <laughs> but uh, called Freedom Road that's actually about reconstruction. And 
It is a fictional tale that he sort of stitched together from conversations he had had with W.B. Du Bois, who he is friends with, and uh, through reading the um, slave memoirs that were collected during the Great Depression uh, as part of a historical project under the New Deal. And he wrote this book about a slave plantation in the Carolinas that is liberated by the Civil War, and it's about what the slaves do afterwards, and it is very good, and I strongly recommend. It's and it's deep, you know, unlike everything we've recommended so far, is uh, fairly short too. It's like two hundred yeah, pages. Yeah. <laughs> and it is mercifully short, and strong recommend that people read. Very good. Um, one last thing, I- uh, just like I think on your point of like, and I think what we mentioned it in our show a little bit, but uh, on the topic of like you know literature. Um, you know, I really think that Blood Meridian um, yeah. <laughs> will really give you a, an idea of the type of guy who was like, you know, like heading west and like just like that. It, it really does paint a vivid picture of that time during westward expansion. Um, it, it, it's it's a it's a tragic but honestly, like kind of, I found like comedy in yeah, it yeah. when really like, reading it too. Like it, it, it really does like paint, paint a picture of like that, like 19th uh, century America. Yeah. yeah. Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Uh, it paints a picture to be sure. Uh, Freedom Road will fill you with, even though it, it has a tragedy in it, will fill you with hope. Uh, read Blood Meridian to crush that hope immediately. Yeah. Afterwards. Just absolutely just like <laughs> take a hammer and just <laughs> smash it to pieces. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But I'd also like to mention that, you know, on our website in the suggested reading section, uh, we contain all the notes for all our episodes, uh, you know, where we mentioned where we got material from. And within those notes, there are lots of full articles and things like that that you can read. Things like Lerone Bennett's The Road Not Taken or Warren mm. Churchill's Nits Make Lice about the repression of Indians in America or Michael Prentice's A Constitution for the Few about the writing of the Constitution, all of which are very good. So, you know, if you haven't looked through that uh, suggested reading section on the website, go do it. There's some good yeah. stuff in there. Yeah, and like as a bonus too, I feel like, um, you know, outside of like just like direct like u.s history books um you know some books that like i think really helped you know me like form like uh an analysis for this like first half um is um i think ellen wood's book the origin of capitalism yeah Ellen Mikens wood very good yes Uh, yes exactly ellen Mikens wood um and you know like that 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 book really actually i mean it's directly tied to like the you know, formation of like transitioning from like feudalism mm-hmm. to capitalism and how that actually was like brought about um, specifically like, you know, in, in Europe and, uh, you know, actually like transferred to um, America as well. Uh, that it, 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 I think it, it's really good. It's super readable and it really just paints a really like vivid picture on like how capitalism was like um, formed. And so like, like if we're talking about like, you know, um, you know, works that are like based on like that time, I would say Origin of Capitalism is great. Um, Lenin's Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. I said it before, I'll say it again. I think that that, um, you know, that book is just like super essential. If you watch Michael Parenti lectures, um, you'll notice that it's actually inspired a lot by Lenin's work. <laughs> yeah. um, like, you know, like that Michael Parenti is a student of Lenin in that way. And like, I, the, you really do connect those dots. So like, you want to really read that primary uh, text. It is like, 
it's honestly like a joy to read. I know that it's like hard to convince people to read stuff that was like, you know, like written like a hundred years ago and stuff. But I mean, truly, I think it does still um, hold up today. So, you know, thinking about key developments of capitalism, the origin of capitalism at the start, and then the development of imperialism, which is now the highest stage of capitalism. Those two things I think are really good because we're talking about base and superstructure a lot. Like this is, this gave me a much more holistic understanding of that base. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think we'll probably end it there. Uh, but I would like to remind people that we will be revisiting you every Sunday from now until God only knows when to get through the 20th <laughs> century. Uh, but we have lots of exciting things coming up. Uh, some great interviews uh, ahead. We also have some really interesting episodes we're going to do on weird stuff that you probably never even heard about, like the Hart Rubman report or the Bretton Woods system and things like that. Things that have structured huge parts of your life <laughs> that, that nobody ever told you about. Right. Uh, we're going to talk about, and of course, lots more of Greg Grandin, lots more correcting the record uh, mm -hmm. in Greg Grandin's yes. book on our part. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll leave it there and we'll see you all next time. The money had to deal, the cows meant to deal, is freedom and liberty and access to a land. Get rid of this abusive government. It's free real space.